Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Hi, my name is Pat Iyer, and this is Legal Nurse Podcast and Christine Dorman, who is a critical care nurse practitioner in Southeast Florida and also is a legal nurse consultant and expert witness for critical care nursing issues. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for having me back and good morning to you. We have talked in our your first podcast about medication errors, and I would encourage our listeners and our watchers on our YouTube channel to find Christine's podcast, the first version, the first part of this topic. We chose critical care medication errors specifically because these can have catastrophic results in critically ill patients. And in the complexity of critical care, it might be that a legal nurse consultant will find a medication error that has affected the patient and not even realize that it took place. Let's start right there, Christine. A legal nurse consultant is working with an attorney on a critical care case, and they've got a suspicion based on the legal nurse consulting knowledge that something untoward has happened. What are some of the clues that that might have occurred? Well, again, the legal nurse consultant may or likely have reviewed the records by this by this time and come up with quite a number of questions of which include what medication may have been utilized, how was it administered, was it the correct dosage of the medication, how was it ordered uh, in the electronic medical record, and the most important thing is that they may look to see if there was any harm that may have come to the patient from utilization of that medication, as and also if there was a reversal agent or an antidote given for that medication. And as we think about the critical care patient who is just by definition unstable, having severe problems affecting several body systems, what are some of the consequences of a medication error for a critically ill patient? We could start with, I think the most um, common one there now is, um, for instance, an opiate. You may have someone that develops respiratory depression from that or uh, poor respiratory effort or drive to, to ventilate or oxygenate also. And they may receive the antidote, um, naloxone or Narcan, the other name for it, that may help improve that patient's uh, respiratory effort to breathe, or sometimes they may end up being placed on mechanical ventilation. And as I think we previously discussed in our the prior podcast, we talked about the paralytic becaronium. 
any increase in any sedatives or any paralytics that may be administered that you find that you have to give reversal agents for, uh, those should draw attention to the for the legal nurse consultant to say, hey, we may have something here. Maybe, let me take a deeper dive into the chart, look into the clinical document, look, you know, request the pharmacy records as well, request the PIXIS records, even look towards uh, looking at the billing records and seeing if something else uh, is there. And so that you can actually evaluate the amount of the medication that was given and how that patient reacted to it by the monitoring that was documented or by the the critical care nurse at that time. Mm-hmm. Well, you've talked about the paralytics and you've talked about opiates. Mm-hmm. Are there other common medication errors that occur in the critical care unit? Yes, we have some of the high-risk medications that are utilized, such as our cardiac medications, the vasoactive drips that may be utilized, dobutamine or dopamine. Those are pretty caustic to the patients once if they're not administered properly or monitored properly. Uh, They're oftentimes introduced or infused through a central venous access catheter if they're not and they're administered through a peripheral vein access, you run the, the, the likelihood of it causing tissue necrosis or breakdown of that patient's uh, extremity. And you worry about losing a limb, you know, limb ischemia from that standpoint. And, and you can also look to see, hey, was the antagonist given for those vasoactive drips where they have to inject, I believe um, the name of the medication is Regitine. It may be called uh, something else in other institutions and look to see if those that medication was given and if there are actual um, pictures in, within the media of the patient's records that would indicate what the extremity may look like uh, at the time that the medication was given and if there is continued monitoring to uh, say that that medication resulted in harm coming to that patient that they actually lost their limbs. As well as even, you know, the hemodynamic monitoring of special catheters that we put in, such as arterial catheters, uh, those also result in, in that they can also result in a limb loss of a patient if uh, patients aren't correctly monitored as well. That's a pretty significant consequence, Christine. Yes. Absolutely. So the the pace of the critical care environment is, you know, one that just like you said, it's pretty rapid. And the staff, the stress that is placed on the staff that is there, the fact that you have to, the, the environment itself can predispose the staff member to having increased stress. They can become pretty fatigued with um, their assignment and the workload that's uh, that is happening, the demands that's placed on them, that they're in a rush and it tries, it pretty much will set them up for making errors if they're not careful with how, you know, and cautious of how they're giving the medications. Mm -hmm. I know that there was a lot of discussion, I want to say probably about 10 years ago about alarm fatigue. Mm -hmm. And some of those alarms 
uh, are coming from IV pumps, that constant noise that goes on in a critical care unit that's, it, it's hard to block out and you shouldn't block it out, right? So that, but it becomes so overwhelming to the nurses who are working in that environment and yeah. yet hazardous if you turn those alarms off. Exactly. Because you're, you're, ultimately what happens is if you're failing to monitor that patient, you're not, you're going to miss something that may have happened emergently that can, that happens in an emergency. You miss the subtleties by failure to uh, watch the trend that's actually happening to the patient. And you end up, you know, seeing it at the last minute when you could have intervened prior to that. Mm -hmm. those, those are the the things that we we are concerned about um, for not only for the patients but from the staff and the provider standpoint as well. I know during the height of the COVID deaths in critical care units that the concept of being able to maintain a one to two staffing ratio got stretched in many locations. I talked to people who referred to bringing in med surge nurses to supplement the critical care staff. I know that now as we record this in August of 2022, that some of that intensity has lessened. Yes. However, the way that the legal system works, we may be seeing as legal nurse consultants lawsuits now and in the future that originated during the height of the crunch on critical care staff. Yes. What can you tell us about how that kind of a staffing issue affects medication errors in the critical care unit? What we can say to speak to is um, the, uh, the unfortunate part of our industry that we are grappling with right now within the nursing profession is trying to retain the staff that is there and also replace the ones that have gone either by, you know, choosing to retire early from the profession because of the burnout that they've experienced from the pandemic or because it was just so stressful for them. And we've lost a lot of experienced nurses who we were depending on to kind of manage up our younger ones coming into the profession. Mm -hmm. So speaking to that, um, retention recruitment continues to be something that's problematic. And it, it's a concern for us in the industry. And we all individually as an organization, um, regardless of who you work for, we are grappling with that. But studies have shown that there is a clinical there, correlation to a patient's mortality uh, from and because of the staffing ratios. If we have staff members that are not able to meet the demands of caring for that patient because of the workload demands and they are not actually able to monitor the patients as they are thoroughly as they were previously because there's they're stretched so far, you know, the, that is the reality of what's happening in the environment, not just in the ICU, but even on the medical med surge floors as well, as well as the telemetry floors. So we have actual data from, I, one example I can give is the Journal of 
the American Medical Association, we've had a battery of um, nursing journals that have conducted studies that show that there, there is a clinical correlation between poor staffing ratios and the error-prone things that can happen to a patient and increase their morbidity, their mortality stays within the hospital. And that includes medication errors that occur to patients, unfortunately. Yes. Tell us about some other factors besides staffing that you have found that affect the patient safety aspect of giving medications in critical care. What we found, uh, I would say the lack of responsiveness at times because, again, the, the staffing ratios come into play. They're not able to document appropriately because they're, again, they're just work, the workload, the demands of the workload, the setting of the ICU environment. They, they're trying to get to all the patients in a timely manner. But because of the lack of responsiveness at times in an emergent situation, you you find that something may be missed, an error may have may have occurred. And the most important thing I would think from my standpoint, and I believe some of the literature also correlates this, is the communication aspect that leads to medication errors or any errors in the critical care environment. If we're failing to communicate effectively you know, whether it's verbally or, or in a written stand form, written up type of manner, then we are increasing the likelihood of errors occurring and also increasing our likelihood of litigation being brought against the facility as well as individual providers. And I think probably we all know that the Joint Commission, which accredits most of the hospitals in the United States has found that communication is the number one factor that leads to patient safety concerns, errors, medical errors. When you think about a multicultural environment with accents and with fatigue and distraction and different levels of knowledge and responsibility, now, it's easy to see how those errors could occur. Yes, exactly. And everyone is trying to do their best for the patients. It's we're not I don't, don't want to come across as a Debbie Downer or anything, but it's the reality of the environment that we face today. Previously, we were able to sit down and talk with patients and counsel them. We're having to make sure that things are documented in a timely fashion and the electronic medical record. And you're just wanting to make sure that you're getting the medications out on time and not having an error occur. And because you're in such a rush, you may fail to realize that you may have committed an error inadvertently when you had no, and that was not your intent to begin with. Yes. I got a phone call one time from an intensivist when my neighbor across the road was in the hospital with pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And his wife handed the cell phone to the intensivist and said, here, talk to her. (laughs) 
And he thought he was speaking to a female oncologist who had told the patient the day before that he had a a rare form of a bone marrow disease and told the wife that he would be dead probably within a week. Oh, wow. The intensivist thought he was talking to the female oncologist instead of to the nurse who lived across the road. Oh, wow. And he lambasted me about how dare I say such a thing to a patient and I should have spoken to him first and this was totally inappropriate. And he was wound up tightly like um, a taut wire. Wow. And I finally was able to interject. I was not who he was referring to. I, I was. I told him my identity. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of laughed, but he was still so tightly wound up that he continued the phone call justifying why he was angry with the oncologist. Yes. And I thought this was just a a highly stressed doctor yes under the heat of the moment mm-hmm. who communicated in a way that made no sense at all considering that i was not the person who he thought i was and didn't stop to take the time at the beginning of the phone call to confirm he was talking to this doctor he the thing that tipped me off was he said well you know how to reach me in the hospital you know how to page me to call me first yeah. Ah, okay. Finally, I understand what's happening in this call. Because in the beginning, it was, what? Why, why am I being yelled at? Well, you know, as a nurse, I've been yelled at by a bunch of doctors over the years. So oh, yes. the dynamic was, okay, he's yelling at me, but what, what did I do? Right. And that was just a simple example of miscommunication. It turned out my neighbor did not have a terminal illness. He's still alive today, a year and a half. He, His disease is in remission and he's being treated appropriately. Mm-hmm. But I could see how that level of stress and miscommunication could lead to a whole set of consequences for a patient re- regarding critical care. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. What is important to your ideal client? Important as empathy is, attorneys don't want you to hold their hands kindly. They want results. To produce the best results for attorneys, you need to define the kinds of cases where you're best equipped to serve. Is it work with medical malpractice attorneys? defense personal injury attorneys, workers' compensation attorneys? What resonates with you? What are the needs of the attorneys that you want to help? Find out what is essential to your ideal clients. Ask questions of attorneys. Use open-ended questions. Consider these questions. What aspect of handling medical records with personal injury cases do you find most challenging? What gives you the most trouble about medical malpractice cases? How would you feel if your adversary surprised you in the courtroom? Also ask some yes, no questions. Are you suffering from this? Are you frustrated about that? Are you tired of this? Do you want more of that? Are you concerned about this? Are you noticing more and more of that? Are you hearing this in the mediation room? Are you seeing this in depositions? Here's something to contemplate. 
experts win on value, and generalists die on price. You must be an expert in a relatively narrow niche. It would help if you positioned yourself as a problem solver. Other LNCs generally do what you do, but genuine problem solvers are priceless. Generalist LNCs sound like everyone else. Therefore, attorneys use your rates to make comparisons, and that inevitably encourages LNCs to lower their rates to get business. And that temptation starts the race to the bottom of the rate scale. You do not want to be in that race. The key to doing this successfully is clarity. Articulate clearly and powerfully that you can solve these kinds of problems. You'll win more points by being clear about how you define yourself and the confidence with which you do so. My new book, Your Ideal Attorney Clients, How to Connect with Them by Speaking Their Language, is full of recommendations to help you attract and retain your ideal client. Order it at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Now let's return to the show. Yes. And even when we're, you know, as providers, we're giving a handoff report to one another. We verbally communicate that. We also have it typed, written in the computer for, you know, just so that we can keep track of what's going on in that patient's medical record so that the information is collated to those who come after us and that it's succinct with the patient's chart. But if it's not put in, inputted in the computer accurately, then that starts that domino effect where something, one thing happens that was said and typed in incorrectly and that just kind of falls from there. So that mm-hmm. that is also a big thing that we, I know that we as um, the advanced practice providers within my uh, my setting deal with and try to make sure that we are very diligent about following through with how we're communicating with, with each other, making sure, ensuring that that verbal report is given accurately as well as the written report. And also with, in speaking with our multidisciplinary staff, as you said, multiple people come into the ICU environment and try to ensure that the best is, um, you know, undertaken for that patient, not only just the staff, the other physicians that are, are also taking, that are also participating in that patient's care also needs to have the accurate information given to provide it to them as well. When I was in the ICU with my neighbor, I watched the process of the rounds And this intensivist who avoided eye contact with me, I might state, after this incident had taken place. But what impressed me from standing there as a nurse was that the critical care nurse was the one who was the hub of information. And the intensivist and the residents were looking at her to give that complete picture of what had happened in the previous 24 hours 
And she went through every body system, every significant finding, Mm -hmm. and the intensivist listened to that and then made some decisions and adjustments in the plan of care based on what she told him. Yes. That was impressive to me because she was the one who was most knowledgeable at that moment about the patient's condition and served as the information source for the rest of the team. Exactly. They're the, they're the hub pretty much in our institution. The advanced practice provider is the one that delineates the information. And we always make, and make sure that we have the nurse that's assigned to our patient, to that patient they're also a part of rounds and they often will interject at times to, for things that we may have overlooked as well. So mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely collaborative. We make sure that we don't miss anything and all the body systems are reviewed and we make adjustments in the treatment plan accordingly, as which includes the medications as well uh, to ensure that the patient has, <clears throat> excuse me, has the actual everything that's tied up for them, <clears throat> excuse me, that they are, have everything that they need uh, to recover, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, move forward with trying to uh, streamline them out of the intensive care unit for those that we are able to do that for. I know that most of our listeners are working in environments where there's some form of an electronic medical record, at least in in the United States and Canada and in some of the other countries where we have a lot of listeners and there are alerts in the system that are safety measures, but many of our listeners are working in critical care units or, or familiar with critical care units that have handwritten charts, manually kept records. Can you comment about the, the safety feature associated with a alerts with alerts that are built into the electronic medical record and how that might interplay with medication errors and maybe if you're old enough to remember Christine <laughs> the times when we didn't have electronic medical records and we worked with manual charts what are some of the ways that safety alerts impact what we're talking about in terms of medication errors well, there are a number of them, and I, I am old enough to uh, to know about the written records. I loved having that chart at the end of the patient's bedside that you're able to pick it up and actually hand document. Uh, I find that I, I relish that time, <laughs> excuse me, because sometimes the electronic medical records, there's just so many layers to it, and you have to, before you move forward, you have to... Um, complete that page before you're able to progress through that. Uh, But with that being said, the safety measures that are in place that we try to incorporate is ensuring that we utilize standardized protocols for medications that we might consider high-risk medications, such as our anticoagulants. We will kind of tailor them to what exactly are we treating. For example, if we're using heparin or any intravenous anticoagulant? Are we dosing it to treat someone for a myocardial infarction? Or are we dosing it to treat some someone that has an acute uh, thromboembolic event such as a pulmonary embolism or a DVT? 
So there, it's, there are standardized protocols for that that's in place, and that includes monitoring of labs, as well as the antagonist that needs to be given for that medication. If the the labs deem that the records, the information is too high, their levels are above therapeutic levels. Mm-hmm. Is the um, the anti ten A which the heparin is being but we also have our drug libraries. I think are the smart pumps that are there that help. It's an actual drug library that actually helps the the bedside nurse streamline how they're giving the medications and making sure that they're giving them appropriately. They're actually set up that if you program which medication that you're utilizing. You, you have to just input the dose of the medication, the volume of the medication. And it, if it's weight-based or if it's not weight-based, it helps you to streamline that more effectively. We also have the nurses that co-sign or double-check medications uh, that they're given to make ensure that the right doses, the right patient, the right route and timing is still being followed as well as just utilizing the stop gaps for computer order entry if if that safety alert does flash and the good old drug books i love a drug book i think everything is computerized right now where <laughs> where the actual drug itself the pharma the what it's being utilized for the interactions that may occur that for that drug, if that patient may be on another medication, do we need to adjust the dosages based on say their, their creatinine clearance? We may need to talk to the pharmacist about having those medications um, be renally adjusted or do they need to be adjusted through the hepatic uh, dosing as well? Mm-hmm. So those are um, medications, the high-risk medications that are that I can think about ways that we can ensure medication safety still is paramount. You, know, you take me back to those times when I used to buy the the drug books every couple of years. They were yeah. paperback books. Yeah. I mean, they probably still exist. I yeah. haven't thought about them for years, but they're yeah. if I'm the video, I'm separating my hands by probably five inches. They were very compact books. Yeah. Now I don't know if you could fit one into a a small bound volume because there are so many medications that have come into the market over the years. Exactly. And the beauty also too is there a lot of the computer order entry systems, the, the electronic medical records, there is a drug library that's attached. Uh, Lexicon, I believe, is one of the big uh, proponents where they have their drug libraries attached to their computer rise order entry uh, that you can also look for that medication. You can look it up and ensure that you're not actually delivering the medication inappropriately, that there is not a a drug interaction or counter interaction, or does that medicine need to run, be infused by itself? Or can you mix that medication? Can you administer it concomitantly with another IV drug and just mm-hmm. to ensure safety. And uh, some of them need to be separated. Some can be infused together. The And everything's, everyone has a smartphone now. So they're, you know, Googling a 
medication, looking that up. I, I believe it's um, X, not Expedia. I wanted to say Expedia, but that's the traveling thing. That they're looking uh, Hippocrates. That that's the uh, another drug library that you can look to, and it also will add a little bit of information and disease process mm -hmm. to back that up as well. Well, Christine, you are just a wealth of knowledge on this topic, and the complexity takes my breath away when I think about all of those factors, what you just shared, the delicate balancing that has to go into ordering a specific dose for a specific patient with a particular set of metabolic disorders, the renal dosing, the hepatic dosing, uh, so many factors go into the delicate balance and the decision-making to pick the right drug with at the right dose, at the right route, at the right time, all of those pieces that we've been talking about, any factor of which could result in a medication error. Exactly. How can our listeners find out more about you and the services and connect with you if they have a need for assistance with a critical care case? You can contact me through Vantage Point Legal Nurse Consulting. That's the name of my company. You can also reach me on the website or through the website, I should say. It's vplnc.com or V for Vantage, P for Point, L for Legal, N for Nursing, C for Consulting. There is an 800 number attached to it uh, through there. I will also provide it, which is 800. 368-7410, or you can email me at christinedorman at vplnc.com. All right, Christine, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. We have just touched the surface of this topic in our 30-minute podcast, and I love how you've got such a great grasp of the complexity of this topic and brought us to think about things like staffing, like communication issues, like the patient's condition, like the stress of the environment, uh, the experienced nurses and their level of experience and how that impacts these issues. All of them can culminate in a catastrophic medication error. Yes. And we as legal nurse consultants can be of great value in assisting attorneys to understand the nuances and the dynamics and the step-by-step -step what happened versus what should have happened. Yes. Be sure to come back next week for a new podcast, new guest, new topic, and get the transcripts. Come to podcast.legalnursebusiness.com and subscribe to receive the transcripts of this podcast so that you can come back to it and refer to the points that Christine shared and know how to reach her if you've got a medication error involving the critical care unit and you would like some assistance. I'm Pat Iyer, and this has been Christine Dorman, and it's been our pleasure to share this time with you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pat. Take care. My name is Pat Iyer. This is Legal Nurse Podcast, where we bring you business tips to help you grow your business and help you thrive. You'll have the opportunity to meet Beth Granger 
in this quick recap of a podcast that we just recorded. Beth is an expert in LinkedIn and is the go-to person in my world when people have questions about LinkedIn. Beth, what were some of the topics that we covered in your podcast? Oh, so many. We, we talked about a little bit about a newish feature called LinkedIn Audio. We talked about strategies for deciding who to accept invitations from. We talked a little bit about automation, yes or no. Uh, we talked about what to do every day. If you have 10 minutes to spend, what are you going to do on the platform? We talked a little bit about content and posting. Um, and we talked a little bit about etiquette. So things that are okay to do and things that maybe you shouldn't do on the platform. We covered a lot in our 30 minutes in this podcast. I know that this is one that you'll want to catch. You want to listen to, take notes, or watch on our YouTube channel, Legal Nurse Business. And make sure that you catch Beth's tips because she is tuned into the latest and she has a great depth of understanding about how LinkedIn can be an effective marketing tool. Thanks so much, Beth. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.